academic year's uh, series of uh, events at the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at Wolfson. And it's wonderful to have uh, Susie Harris here uh, tonight. Uh, she's an alumna of Newnham College, Cambridge, and of St Anne's, both of which facts make me feel rather jealous. Um, I wish I could claim her for Wolfson. Um, she's written widely on art and culture, including a book on Elizabeth Lutyens and on the Academy of St Martin in the Fields. But her greatest and most acclaimed work uh, is her stunning biography of Nicholas Pevsner, which came out in 2011. And it's particularly fitting she should be talking about this here because she won the Wilson History Prize for it in May, which was a prize that Pevsner himself won in 1976 uh, for his book Building Types, when it had a slightly different name, the prize. And it's also very apt because one of the hundreds of fascinating stories she tells in her biography uh, was that Isaiah Berlin consulted Pevsner on who the architect of Wilson College should be uh, in 1966, though I was sorry to learn uh, from her book that he recommended Arne Jacobson, the architect of St. Catherine's, and not Powell and Moyer. Uh, that Isaiah, like Pevsner, a Jewish immigrant to England in the early 20th century, should have been consulting Pevsner on this matter in the 1960s is one tiny example of an amazing career that took Pevsner from Leipzig to the heart of England spanned most of the 20th century and left his surname forever to the books that describe the architecture of England county by county, building by building, and which did a large amount uh, to shape the taste, culture and environment of post-war England. In his notes towards an autobiography, Pevsner divided up his life into professional, domestic and secret. This wonderful book of Susie Harris covers all three aspects and it does much more too. At one point, she tells us what Pevsner didn't do in the buildings of England, as well as what he did. He didn't evoke atmosphere. He didn't put in settings or people or construction methods. He described what was there and why and what he thought of it. Susie Harris does all the things that Pevsner does, and she does what he didn't do. Her biography is hugely evocative, contextualising and historically explanatory. It gives a marvellous picture of 20th century England. And it also captures a remarkable man with the utmost vividness and solidity. The book is itself a building to be admired. Um, I like the fact that it's called The Life, not A Life. Um, and so she's going to talk about it and the making of that building here tonight. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Hermione. Um, containing multitudes is a phrase lifted from a line of Walt Whitman, which Pevsner quoted with approval when he himself was writing about how William Morris thought. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain multitudes. And the phrase has a very obvious literal application in the context of writing about Pevsner, because at one level it was a huge exercise in containment. Um, the amount of material available was colossal, uh, that the bibliography of Pevsner's own writings uh, runs to 66 pages just by itself, uh, which is why it's not in the book, it's actually online. Um, but it was also important not to ignore the thought behind the phrase and to try and encompass the contradictions um, in Pevsner and to find a way of dealing with them that would let, that let, let you present 
um, a single coherent personality. Because on first sight, all the evidence seemed to point generally in the same direction uh, towards the type of man who would naturally be capable of producing such a vast volume of material. So you're really looking for um, an orderly, driven, successful workaholic. Um, the man who brought the German art historical method to England and then used it to catalogue England's architectural heritage uh, at, to save the Victorian century, which is something he was credited with, um, and also to become a pillar of the English art establishment in, in the process. He once got a letter uh, from a South African academic which said, a Pevsner is a British standard unit, which is the maximum intellectual output a human being is capable of, working under constant pressure and temperature. <laughs> well, I hope you'll see that he didn't actually work under constant pressure. Um, but then again, practically the first person I interviewed said, as they let me through the door, uh, I don't know what you're going to write about because the man did nothing but work. Um, and then you start to look at the material and it's hard to see how he could possibly have done anything else uh, because the, the 46 volumes that you see there of the buildings of England are supported by a substantial um, administrative archive. That's now uh, with the Penguin Papers in Bristol. Uh, but when I saw it, it was still with the Building of England office when it was still with Penguin, um, and it was still in High Street, Kensington. And this was about six months after Penguin had published the Satanic Verses. So to get to see Pevsner's letters to vicars and librarians, I had to go through uh, the armed guard that had been put there for Salman Rushdie. Um, but beyond the Building of England admin notes, there were all the notes that Pevsner made for himself on his trips around the counties. Thousands and thousands of pages of observations and drawings, which are now safely in the um, National Monuments record in Swindon. And then there were the transcripts of the radio broadcasts that he made over 30 years with the BBC. Uh, they're in the BBC written archives in Caversham, outside Reading, uh, with a further pile of administrative comments on his accent and his delivery and the interest or the lack of interest of, of his talks. He didn't, uh, he wasn't universally admired at the BBC. P.H. Uh, Newby, the novelist, um, who was one of his producers, was not, not a fan. Um, and then there are the contributions between 1936 and 1975 to the Architectural Review, which was the leading architectural magazine during and after the war, and a principal mouthpiece of modernism. And Pevsner contributed sometimes in his own name uh, and also under a couple of pseudonyms. Um, and uh, you see him there on the left and on the right um, is uh, Hubert de Cronin Hastings, who was the proprietor of the Architectural Review. And then there were the records of his years with the Victorian Society, uh, first on the committee, then as the chairman, and then as the life president. Um, his was the signature um, along with that of John Betjeman, that you really wanted on your letter to the Times if you were trying to appeal to, to preserve a building. Um, and, and you can study the Society's archives sitting in the room where he chaired meetings of the Society uh, in an area, uh, Bedford Park, which he campaigned to save. And actually, on that occasion, it was shoulder to shoulder with John Betjeman, although that wasn't always the case. And spanning all these different collections, there was the archive of Pevner's professional papers, uh, which has been lodged since the mid-1980s in the Getty Library in Los Angeles. 
Um, this is the Getty Center up in Brentwood, overlooking the San Bernardino Mountains and the Pacific. Um, sadly, when I first visited the archive uh, on a Churchill traveling fellowship, it was still in the old library in a perfectly ordinary um, office block in Santa Monica. But it had been catalogued. Um, and it had an extraordinary range of materials, mostly, as I say, relating to his professional life. Um, so it was correspondence uh, with architects and philosophers and publishers. Uh, there were his lecture notes and endless cuttings, expenses, accounts, memos. And then at the very end, a, a very thin personal folder with a, a few letters and some scraps of notes. So looking at this great heap of material, uh, the temptation was to start with the obituaries. But actually, I, I think this is always a mistake because the, the nature of the form um, tends towards setting it out as a, as a beginning and a middle and an end. And it gives the impression of a straightforward climb to, towards eminence. And I think at the very least, you need to ask why on earth Pevsner worked as he did and even in, the, uh, even in the bare factual skeleton of his life, there were signs that this wasn't actually at all a straightforward life. I mean, there was the very obvious contradiction that, that this supposed pillar of Englishness, and um, as Hermione said, a, a definer of Englishness, wasn't English, um, but, but was a German forced out of Germany by Hitler's race laws. And there were other things to show that the picture of him that I started out with um, the, the, the picture that's on the cover of the book was actually much too tidy. Um, the family, the Pevsner family themselves, had given me a family history of sorts that he had compiled in 1954 for the benefit of his children. Uh, and it was very short, and it was written in a very deadpan style. If you think the buildings of England is, is deadpan. Um, but this made what was in it all the more surprising. Um, there was an uncle with a gambling habit and a, and a venereal disease and a cousin who was a big game hunter and was murdered in Africa by his wife and the chauffeur. Uh, there was an aunt who was engaged to a heroin addict and another one who worked in the hat department of Marshall and Snellgrove and was married to a, a, an Irish ultranationalist. But actually more, more striking than all of this, that the most striking feature of, of the memoir still in this very flat, uninflected tone, is that it was essentially and primarily a description of a Jewish heritage and the consequences of, of this heritage. Um, in, at the, he, he ends his introduction to his children uh, by saying, the fundamental fact you must keep in mind when you start reading now is that you are, to put it in the Nazi way, 75% Jewish. And when he wrote this, he had just been to East Germany, and he'd gone in search of his parents' graves. Uh, the original intention had been that the whole family should be buried together um, in, in Leipzig, in the main cemetery, which was multi-faith. Um, and in the event, uh, to find his father, uh, Pevsner had to go to the new Jewish cemetery in the northern outskirts of the city. And he did find the slab with his father's name on it and a space below it for his mother's name, but by 1941, when his mother died, it hadn't been possible anymore to arrange a Jewish funeral in Leipzig. And she'd been buried rather hastily in the, um, the old Jewish cemetery on Berlinerstrasse, further south, uh, with no plaque and no tombstone and just a, a birch tree marking the place. 
So this was somebody writing with full consciousness of a Jewish heritage. But there were some other scraps of evidence that at first sight seemed to sit very oddly with this. Uh, There was an article of 1933 in the Manchester Guardian by a Quaker refugee worker about an interview she'd conducted in Göttingen with an unidentified German scholar who, in the context, it's quite clear, it is Pevsner, uh, who identifies himself as a nationalist and remarks that there is much in the Hitler movement that's Puritan and moral. And then there's a letter written by Pevsner uh, from a camp outside Liverpool in 1940 where he's been interned as an enemy alien uh, alongside men like Franz von Rintelen, who was Germany's most dangerous spy in, in World War I. But at the same time, Pevsner's name appears in the Nazis' black book, which lists the enemies of the regime who were to be taken care of uh, in the event of of an invasion of of Britain. So there were some fairly spectacular loose ends, but there was quite enough else to do um, to be able to shelve them at least temporarily and just worry away at them from time to time without really having anything more to go on. And then about nine months into the research, on a, a Sunday evening... Uh, there was a ring at the door, and one of the Pevsner family was there holding a, a grey tin trunk. And it had a, a peeling label on the lid which said, Mr. Thief, this is not locked, it contains nothing of value. And strictly speaking, uh, it would have been of no value to a thief, but it actually contained Pevsner's missing personal life because it was his letters. Um, It was photographs, it was appointment books, and above all, it was diaries. Uh, The first one was dated 1916, and the last one was dated 1976. So it's the kind of thing that biographers fantasise about, but you don't normally get it delivered to your door. Um, And over the next weeks, months, it kept on coming. Um, Battered box files and cardboard boxes and plastic bags and letters and passports and higher purchase contracts and marriage certificates and condolences and invitations to Buckingham Palace. It just went on and on. And I find it completely irresistible to start with the photographs. Um, But as, in fact, they often do, they just seem to raise more questions. Uh, Where was Pevsner going when he took this passport photograph? Um, And why was he perhaps more than usually uneasy um, and what was the significance um, of those windows outlined in black in this block in Leipzig? Um, and, and how to explain his appearance in uniform at all and the uh, uniform of an English colonel? Uh, there were no clues at all about this. So you look to the diaries and the letters to provide the answers. And chronologically, the diaries were the place to start. Um, but they weren't without their problems. Um, Blown up to this size, the handwriting doesn't look so bad. Um, But in fact, it was fairly heavy going when it was crammed into these little notebooks. It's the kind that um, children often use as vocabulary books. Uh, He he called them his heftchen, his little books. And they were, of course, in German, which I didn't really read. Um, And when he wanted to be particularly confidential, he went into shorthand. I think you can just see in a few places... Um, And this isn't any old shorthand. This is a a version, as it were, of the German Pittman, uh, but one that he devised to suit his own purposes when he wanted to be particularly interesting. Um, 
So it was code, effectively, and, and I had to ask for help. I enlisted a, um, a friend's German teacher from, from school who was herself a refugee, and so she was interested not just in Pevsner but in the background he'd come from. And once or twice a week for several years, we toiled through the entries that detailed his early life. Um, for, for months at a time, he would write two or three entries a day. Well, by the time I actually visited Leipzig to, to try and see the places he was writing about, um, the Berlin Wall was down, and Leipzig was a very odd mixture of, of modernization and nostalgia, uh, apparently trying to ignore the years in between. And it was a good deal easier to buy old souvenir postcards of what Leipzig had looked like in Pevsner's youth um, than actually to take photographs of surviving buildings because there were cranes and scaffolding everywhere, uh, including all over the house in which he'd begun his diaries, uh, which was very frustrating. But one place hadn't changed. Um, this, is the, this is the birch tree in the old Jewish cemetery. And I don't know if you can see it there, but um, below it, there was a small plaque which he uh, had eventually got to mark his mother's grave. And I did finally get a photograph of the Pevsner home um, in the music quarter of Leipzig from a friend who took it, especially when the scaffolding came down. And it, I think it gives some idea of the opulence of the block, uh, but not the scale of the apartment. Um, this was a four-person family, and they occupied the whole of one floor, which was 12 rooms arranged around a, a very large central dining room. It was a, a, it was a very comfortable middle-class family of Russian-Jewish descent. This is Pevsner's maternal grandfather, Saveli Maximovich Perlman. Um, he was a fur trader, uh, not, not actually a very good one, because he was much more interested in um, the interpretation of the scriptures. And Pevsner's father, Hugo, uh, who, who was actually born Gilel, but changed, changed his name, um, he was better at it. He was a better fur trader, and he was certainly good enough at it to support the social and cultural aspirations of his wife, Annie. This is Pevson's mother in her heyday, and she hosted salons in that lavish flat for, for musicians from the Gewandhaus, which was just down the road, and for academics from the university. So that the young Nikolai, which is what he was baptised, had a, a comfortable bourgeois upbringing, but that's why, in a way, the Hefgen was so important and the letters that he wrote as a schoolboy and as a student because this wasn't actually someone who was comfortable. Um, the memoir he wrote for his children sets out this family background, uh, but the diaries actually show him doing everything he can to get out of it. Um, there's a sentence I, I thought was really important where he writes, this is what I like, everything I'm not. And his, his home was crowded and complicated um, and the atmosphere was emotional and, and in, intense and the politics tended to be very liberal uh, and the company was bohemian. And it was all a bit exotic and not very German in, in his view. He was rather solemn um, and not unusually for somebody of his age. He was a bit depressed about his looks. He was very sensitive in particular to any trace of anti-Semitism, which wasn't that uncommon even then. And above all, he was desperate to fit in. Um, in the Getty archive, there's a rather stiff, pompous letter from the, the teenage Pevsner to Thomas Mann about Mann's polemic reflections of an unpolitical man. 
And the, the diaries reveal what it was that attracted Pevsner to, to Thomas Mann, uh, because there's a great deal about the novella, uh, Tonio Kroger. Um, Tonio is, is dark and sophisticated and burdened with knowledge and the creative temperament. So this is obviously Pevsner um, himself. Uh, and he's drawn to the fair and the naive and the popular, uh, the people he calls the harmloser, uh, harmless people, innocent of the world's complexities, who are natural belongers. Uh, Pevsner desperately wanted to be a belonger. And, and when he falls in love, and this is documented at great length in the diaries, it's with someone he sees as a belonger. Um, this is Lola on the left, Lola Kohlbaum. Um, and she came from a home that was only five minutes away in Leipzig. Uh, but in Pevsner's mind, it was a world away. Um, her father, Alfred Kohlbaum, who you see on the right, was a very eminent lawyer uh, and a public servant. And her family were bastions of the Lutheran church at the end of the road. And her street and her house weren't as smart as his, but they were homely and respectable. And the atmosphere in the household was everything he thought he wanted. Um, it was cultured, but it was also disciplined, and it was Prussian, which was a, a term of, of, of the highest praise in, in his vocabulary. I think a, a large part of his problem at home was actually his relationship with Annie, with his mother. Uh, one of the documents that the family gave me a bit later on was a record that he had made of this relationship uh, much later after she died after she had, in fact, killed herself to avoid transportation to a concentration camp. And those windows outlined in black um, on the block of flats in Leipzig were the windows of her room in the Judenwohnung, or Jew's house, uh, in which she was confined from 1940 to 1942, and where she died. And Pe Pevsner is very hard on his younger self. Um, it, it's characteristic all the way through of, of his diaries. Uh, and his memoirs. He's actually harder on himself than I think other people would have been. Uh, but it is clear that at the time, um, Annie embarrassed him very much. Um, she, she smoked, she played cards, um, she declared in the middle of the First World War that she was a pacifist. Um, she, she did suffer a good deal from her nerves. She had several breakdowns. And she was nothing like a good German housefrau. Uh, and it was only in retrospect that he really acknowledged, recognized even, how much he, he owed to her and to her encouragement of, of his aspirations. He did record um, a, a rare conversation with her in which he told her of his dream to see myself as a professor of art history in a small house of my own with the lady wife and a child teaching, going about my business, maybe now and again writing, a German idyll. And she had a lot of good contacts in academia, and she did everything she could to make his dream a reality. So that by the late 1920s, he was well on his way. He, he was a, a young lecturer in art history at the University of Göttingen. Uh, he was a specialist in Italian Baroque and Mannerist painting, with a sideline in contemporary German art. He'd converted to Lutheranism, and this was partly to please Lola, um, whom he married in 1923, but also, in his own words, it was done to be normal German. Um, I think sometimes a, a, a single throwaway line, and this was something he said casually in later life, um, can be very revealing. And this was definitely where he felt he belonged. That's Pevsner in the bow tie in the middle of a crowd of his students. 
and work was his escape um, from uncertainties. He once described work as a route to happiness, to banish despair, which already means looking at a project like the Buildings of England in a slightly different way, I think. And by this time, we're now in the late 1920s, um, the letters have taken over from the diaries as the main source of, of evidence. Because, um, I, I'll explain this later, in the 1970s, he actually destroyed a long sequence of the diaries. But the letters are, are almost as much of an interior monologue. Um, he used to keep them by him and, and add installments when he felt like it. He, he was a slightly relentless letter writer, and, and I did wonder sometimes how welcome the letters were, or whether Paul Lola felt a bit overpowered by them. Um, there, there are very few of hers left, so the picture is, is quite lopsided. And they come mostly from Italy in these years, where he spent much of East, each summer pursuing his painters. Um, but they also come from England, where he made his first extended trip in 1930, uh, preparing a, a course of lectures on English art and architecture for these Göttingen students. And he wrote home, Englishness, of course, is the purpose of my trip. So it's tempting to see this trip in 1930 as the start of a long bout of Anglophilia, uh, which would prompt him to make his wreath lectures in 1955 um, about the Englishness of English art. And, of course, the finest flower of this Anglophilia would then be the buildings of England. But I think that's, that's actually misleading at this point, because he was fascinated by the idea of national character as you could see it in a nation's art. But this had its roots, actually, in German art and in Germanness. It was another facet of wanting to belong. Uh, this is uh, Naumburg, uh, which is in the wine-growing region, about 40 miles south of Leipzig. Uh, it's where Lola's family had a, an idyllic country house um, up on the vine terraces. But it's also home to one of the most important Gothic cathedrals in Germany, which was particularly famous for its medieval sculptures, uh, which weren't of saints, but of the cathedral's founders. This is the Margrave Eckhart and his wife Uta, after whom Pevsner called one of his children. He found in these statues particularly the embodiment of what he saw as the German spirit, which was intense emotion, but it was expressed with strict formal control. Uh, and and Naumburg becomes a kind of code word in, in his later writing for everything that he felt about the Germany that he knew and the Germany that he wanted to be part of. Anyway, you can see from what he tells Lola in these letters back from England that he's actually rather irritated when he finds features of England that he considers superior to Germany. Um, I mean, it's, it's very interesting that he considers some of the techniques of museum display to be much better than the ones um, in Germany. But he also comments on things like there being more public lavatories and, and a, a better underground. And he's also irritated by features that are different from Germany. Um, the English class system is, is a perpetual source of, of wonder and amazement to him at this, at this point. And he's also astonished by the fact that no one talks to each other on this marvellous public transport. Um, so it's not, it's not love at first sight uh, for England at, at this stage. And when the blow falls, and he has to leave Germany um, after Hitler's decree of April 1933, which expelled everyone of Jewish ethnicity from the civil service, which at that stage included the universities, uh, it's Italy where he tries to, to get a job as an art historian. 
And it's only when he finds that there's just too much competition there from other German academics looking for jobs in art history that he, he just keeps going and, and carries on to England. So, so the move to England is not some kind of preordained progression. It's actually the story of a career being thrown off course. I think this is probably the point at which to pick up the loose end of Pevson's politics. Now, I can't really do justice to the subject because it deserves a talk to itself. Um, but I mentioned the match the Guardian interview with a Quaker refugee worker uh, in which Pevsner describes himself as a German nationalist. Uh, the, the worker's name was Francesca Wilson. I'm sorry this is such a fuzzy photograph. She's a very mysterious, interesting woman. Um, and it was very important, I thought, in, in deciding how much weight to give to Pevsner's apparent sympathy with some aspects of Nazism, that it was this woman, this, it was Miss Wilson, who actually helped him to come over to England. She used the Quaker network to get him out of Germany and to find him sponsors in London. Um, and at this stage, he was still talking quite openly uh, to his hosts and, and their friends about the sympathy that he had with some aspects of national socialist ideology. Uh, this was certainly true in 1934, and he would continue to defend Germany in conversations uh, for longer than that. But she was so far from considering him a pernicious Nazi that she took him as a lodger in her own home. She was actually teaching at a girls' school in Birmingham, and Pevsner went to live with her. This is 35 Duchess Road, Edgbaston, while he did some research on industrial design for a professor of commerce at Birmingham University. I and mean, this isn't to say that he was actually very comfortable during his first years in England, uh, because his letters make it perfectly clear that he felt foreign. And actually, there was nowhere that this was more obvious than um, in Oxford. He was hoping to build on a rather tenuous contact which he had with the daughter of the rector of Lincoln College. And he was very kindly received, um, but his letters home were unam unambiguous. Not doing too well. It's not just that I've only got my black suit and no dinner jacket. It's the whole atmosphere where it's inconceivable to have financial worries or to be in a hurry. There's a way of talking here, fast and very informal, with innumerable Oxford allusions. A lot of irony and very little solid seriousness. Quite hopeless. Every sentence, every lecture, every book, every conversation here means something quite different from what it would mean at home. The brain itself is wound differently. In Oxford, I feel more German than I do anywhere else, like an elephant in a china shop. And even the simile is wrong. Um, the, the letters, I think these letters from his early years in England were in some ways the most important materials of, of, of all in working out how he felt about England and about, and about Germany. And also they cover the period in which he changes course from an academic art historian specializing in painting to a pundit on modern design, a champion of the international modern movement in architecture particularly, and a writer on buildings in general. Uh, by the late 30s, he'd sold enough articles to the Architectural Review for its editor, uh, J.M. Richards, to commission from him a whole special issue of the magazine, uh, which would have been about contemporary architectural styles in Britain in the 20s and 30s. But it was commissioned in 1939, and the war saw to the end of the special issue. Uh, and by June 1940, he had been interned in a just-built council estate in Heighton, um, just outside Liverpool. 
Um, what you see is people stuffing palliasses with straw. Uh, that, that the estate had just been built, but it hadn't been occupied. Uh, and this, on the whole, was the furniture that they had for the first weeks, at least. But funnily enough, internment wasn't the unmitigated disaster that, that you might think. I mean, obviously, it, it was a blow to his confidence um, in, in having assimilated. Uh, he, he wrote later, the sudden shock of having become officially a dangerous, disliked alien was horrible. But he used his time in the camp quite well. Uh, like many of the um, academics who were interned, he gave lectures and he held classes in a, in a makeshift, makeshift school. And he also, in his spare time, worked on the idea of uh, writing a short history of European architecture, as you do. Um, and he also, he wasn't interned for very long. Um, the, the war years had started dismally, but in fact they were the point at which the tide turned for him. Um, and, and the reversal was quite dramatic. Uh, when he came out of, of the camp, um, towards the end of 1940, the only work he could get was clearing rubble um, in Kentish Town. It, it was uh, in the aftermath of the first stages of, of the Blitz. But a year later, he was the temporary editor of the Architectural Review. Uh, he was a part-time lecturer at Birkbeck. And perhaps most important, he was firmly established uh, at one of the most successful of all publishing houses at that time, uh, Penguin Books. He'd met Alan Lane, one of Penguin's founders and its managing director, uh, before the war. And they'd vaguely discussed this idea of, of producing a brief history of Europe, European architecture. Uh, this was going to be for Pelican, which was, which was new. Um, which is probably what gave, this is why he was working away during internment. Uh, and by 1941, this was a, a proper commission. So an, an outline of European architecture, uh, which I saw described recently on the internet as the new unit of currency in second-hand bookshops, uh, because so many copies of it were printed. Um, it, has, it has his most famous line, a bicycle shed is a building, Lincoln Cathedral is a piece of architecture. Uh, it's also provided one of the best Pevsner stories, um, before he was offered a job in the lecture halls at Birkbeck, he actually had worked for them on the roof as a fire watcher. Uh, this was when they were in Bream's buildings um, in, uh, in, in the city. Uh, and I was quite often told the story of how he'd written Outline, uh, seated on an upturned bucket uh, on the roof in, in the glow of the searchlights and, and, and the fires in the city. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid it was probably a, a bit of a rhetorical flourish because um, other Birkbeck colleagues remember him perfectly well in the common room in the basement um, where he was writing alongside E.V. Ryu who was translating the Odyssey um, also for Penguin. Anyway, um, as I say, it, it, it was a considerable success. It sold um, a quarter of a million copies in its first 20 years and it's still in print 70 years later, I think the latest edition, which is an enormous illustrated version, came out in 2010. Uh, but, but even before it came out, uh, Penguin had offered him another job, uh, editing the King Penguins, which was an already existing series, whose editor had been killed in the Blitz. Um, they, they were small illustrated books that were really designed as, as keepsakes, and it was the first go that Penguin had with colour, and the first go with hardback. And they were on an extraordinary range of topics from kilts and, and edible fungi to, to cricket and, and portraits of Christ. 
And because they feel so much part of English publishing history, it's very easy to see him as having blended quite comfortably into the English background by the end of the war. Uh, and of course, this is when we find him literally in English dress, in an English uniform. Well, it turns out he was part of a mission sent by the Board of Trade to investigate the current state of German design with a view to improving British manufacturers and making them more competitive, largely against German products. Um, looking at Bakelite and Hoover's is how he described it. And it was really rather a refined kind of industrial espionage. Um, this was taken at the beginning of the expedition, um, before they left England. Uh, and I think that's, that's why he's still smiling. Um, the, the official records of his trip are in the University of Brighton, uh, in the archives of the Design Council. But the unofficial version comes from his letters home. Uh, he, he was confined to the British zone, unfortunately, and didn't get anywhere near Leipzig. But he was still shattered by the devastation and the deprivation that he saw. Uh, and it's, it's obvious that he's still completely torn in his sympathies, um, torn between the versions, the two different versions of himself. He wrote to Lola, is it heightened in reverse? Then I was on the wrong side, and today I'm on the wrong side again. But be that as it may, by the time he set off for Germany, he already had the contract for the biggest project of his English life. Uh, in the summer of 1945, with a new Labour government and a very heavy emphasis on adult education, um, Alan Lane asked Pevsner what he thought Penguin should be doing in the field of art history. And I think most people would have had a, a pet title up their sleeve. Um, Pevsner had two enormous series. Uh, one was the Pelican History of Art, which was a grand survey of all world art, um, and the other one was an inventory, county by county, of the buildings of England, anything that was of any architectural significance. And I suppose it's when we do finally get to the buildings of England that we begin to get a more unified picture of Pevsner, because it was such a, a focus for his life, and it took so much of his time. It grounded him, um, in different senses of the word, though, because it did give him ballast, and it certainly gave him a clear identity as an observer of England and of Englishness. But it also grounded him in his own eyes, in the more uh, American sense of the word, of, of being confined um, and, and tied down. Because it left no time at all for original research, um, let alone recreational reading or concerts or cinema or any of the things that he'd previously enjoyed. So that the more successful he got through the buildings of England, the further away he actually became from the kind of scholar he'd originally intended to be. So that you find him writing in the Heftian in 1966. The others are all genuine scholars. I am no longer. And in one of his last entries in the diaries, he says, I am fully aware that in Geschichte der Kunstgeschichte, which is the, the history of art history, I would not exist except as a compiler, an entrepreneur, and a vulgarisateur. Now, I think in one of the first entries in the Heftian, he wrote, the image that I have of myself is very vague and not at all good. And the downside of, of having such a rich supply of first-hand material is that you can be a bit swamped by the person's image of themselves, uh, which may be vanity and, and conceit, uh, but in Pevson's case, it, it was a possibly rather overdeveloped sense of self-criticism. And I'm not sure he ever completely understood exactly how much his work as a teacher 
um, and his work through the buildings of England had, had meant to people. So that many of the people I interviewed spoke of his effect on them as, quite simply, as changing their lives. And I, it was important at this stage to, to hear some other voices. Um, and researching, in fact, researching his teaching and researching the buildings of England was largely a matter of interviews and of correspondence with people who'd worked for him, uh, his drivers and his researchers, um, or been taught by him, or even gone to lectures at Birkbeck or at Cambridge, where he lectured twice weekly for almost 30 years. But there are problems with interviews. Um, I, I came earlier in the year to Alan Hollinghurst talking about his book, The Stranger's Child. I would make it compulsory for any biographer to read it because of his description which, of what may be going on in an interview. It does make the blood run cold. Um, it's excruciating about the vices of, of the interviewer. He describes his interviewer like some little wire-haired ratter with his bloody-minded way of going at things. But it's also very revealing about what may be the problem with the interviewee. Um, the widow of the subject of the biography in the novel says of the interviewer, he was asking for memories, too young himself to know that memories were only memories of memories. And, and it is true that a lot of the people I was talking to and this sounds ungrateful, it's not, because it was very important. But they'd known him during their student years, and their memories did seem to be coloured by the general emotions of their student years. Uh, he, he was very much part of the Cambridge experience for an extraordinary number of people. And stories that have been told quite often tend to get rather well-polished and a bit slippery. Um, so the way I looked at it was that the emotion behind the stories was truthful, and it was usually affection, but there was sometimes irritation and, and sometimes even, even anger. But the actual facts um, were more elusive. And this is certainly true when you get to the buildings of England. He hardly ever mentions the buildings in the diaries that survive. And there were hardly any letters during his travels, uh, mostly because for the first 15 years or so, um, Lola, his main correspondent, was with him because she was his driver. He only drove himself once um, in Nottinghamshire. And there he did write her letters that give a fantastic impression of how much his judgment of places might have been coloured by external circumstances that had very little to do with architecture. Um, the, the buildings of England look so magisterial at a distance and, and so the tone is so authoritative that you assume that they must be impartial and, and dispassionate. But they, they really aren't. Um, he was an awful awful driver um, and his journey around Nottinghamshire is a catalogue of woe. He lost the starting handle for, for, for the Austin which was quite serious. Uh, he bashed both front and back mudguards and he spilt paraffin from the heater um, in the car uh, on his Mac which meant that every nasty hotel room he stayed in smelt uh, and he made himself dreadful sandwiches of raw bacon. I don't know how he made it round the county. <laughs> And I'm sure that this has a lot to do with some very uncharitable pronouncements on places like Retford, which he called a singularly unattractive town. And I, I can't see, really, why he took exception to the town's largest church. This is St. Swithin. Big, but also unrewarding. And then there's the town hall. Without any of the Victorian qualities which we are today ready to appreciate again, a bad mansard roof and a bad turret, 
Of the few Georgian houses in the square and the surrounding streets, not one needs special mention. And it doesn't get any better. He goes around the whole county. It's as gloomy as anything. And looking ahead a little bit to, to, the, to, to your next conference on the lives of, of objects, I think it's perhaps worth making the point that the lives of buildings are very often told in terms of their inhabitants. Now, but Pesner has no trap with this at all. Um, he, he prefers to tell the story of buildings on their own terms, almost entirely. And he's actually been very much criticised, particularly by later art historians, um, for apparently taking so little interest in, in families uh, or in patrons, or even in architects sometimes, which is very much against the trend of later architectural history, which puts much more emphasis on social and economic factors. And it's true, I think he tended to work backwards from buildings to people, uh, rather than the other way around. So that when he arrived at a church, his first move was usually, well, almost always, to walk around the outside uh, to make his own observations, uh, to see what was there and what appeared to have been built when, and if possible, why. Um, and then he would read the notes that had been prepared for him that would fill in some of the background, uh, the, any dates that were actually known, and the name, not just of the architect, but also of, of any restorer that there might have been. But with medieval churches in particular, he believed it didn't really matter exactly who had built it. He was much more interested in the idea of the collective spirit of the medieval guild uh, and the notion of people working together to produce a church. And he actually disagreed quite strongly with historians who persisted in trying to identify um, individual masons. And he often uses vocabulary that most writers might reserve for people uh, when he's talking about buildings. So they become jolly. This is Fulham Public Baths, which he thought was jolly because the, the columns were so squat and there were so many of them. Or, or lanky. This is um, St. Luke's Church in Sydney Street in Chelsea. This is uh, St. Mark's Silvertown. Uh, he called it pathetically self-assertive. Um, this was, it was by Toulon, um, whom he, he was one of his favourite rogue architects. Um, and that's quite mild for, for what he said about Toulon's churches. This is aggressive. This is the, um, the well, it was then, the, the new police station in Chester. It's since been demolished. Um, and Naughty was another one he liked. This is the front of the V&A. Uh, which he thought was pretty naughty because of the way it threw together a whole variety of different uh, motifs. And it goes on. He calls buildings hungry, non-committal, virile, effusive, and prim. I mean, his reactions are just as personal, sometimes more personal, than, than to people. Um, and where he does tell you about the person who designed a building um, or lived in it um, or commissioned it, often he seems to have got his information about the person actually from the building. And this is Hardwick Hall uh, near Chesterfield in Derbyshire. And to him, it's important as an expression of English character. He talks about this in his wreath lectures on the Englishness of English art. Um, he saw the English character as generally rational, surveyable, unmysterious, a matter of pride and squareness and matter-of-factness. The English appear to love general angularity, hard separation of parts, repetitiveness. Of course, this is most obvious in the conception of, of the grid. In the most characteristically English houses of about 1600, 
At Hardwick, for instance, there is nothing but square and oblong blocks, flat roof, square-top towers at the angles, square and oblong windows leaving little of solid wall, a rigid, rational grid. But, of course, at the top of the grid, uh, there is, of course, a little decorative flourish. I mean, it, it's symmetrical, but it's, it's decorative. And it's from this that Pevsner can actually read the personality of the house's owner, Bess of Hardwick, because she has literally stamped her initials on her property. ES, that's Elizabeth Shrewsbury, after her fourth and richest husband. And it's having this architectural detail in front of him that enables him to move on and describe her character. Egotistical, obviously. Ostentatious, obviously. Um, something of a bully. Uh, you can see her hard, able, proud character in Hardwick's uncompromising rectangularity its regular pattern of extremely large windows and the somewhat coarse grandeur of the decoration inside. Well, I suppose getting absorbed in this kind of detail um, in the 46 volumes of the Buildings of England is quite a good excuse for spending almost 20 years of one's life writing about one other person's life. Um, there were some benefits of spending that long, uh, apart from the invention of Google, um, along the way, which made it very, very much easier to check facts um, and construct the context, and ab above everything else, to, to find connections between people. Uh, I, did, I liked the idea of Pevsner with a search engine. I, I think he'd have welcomed it and used it. Um, and there's also the fact that biography is never static, and new evidence is always turning up. Um, the correspondence that, that Hermione mentioned between Pevsner and Isaiah Berlin... Uh, on the choice of an architect for Wilson, I didn't get to see until relatively late in the day. And I mentioned earlier that he destroyed a long sequence of the Heftian. These were the diaries that covered his marriage, and he destroyed them because Lola asked him to, on the grounds that they were as much about her life as they were about his. Uh, he'd actually lost one volume in about 1958, when he hid it from a nosy colleague in the office and couldn't find it again. Otherwise, in 1974, he took the volumes covering 1924 to 1963, which was the year that Lola died, and he tried to get rid of them. And I say tried because two weeks later, to his mortification, three volumes were returned to him anonymously in the post, um, suggesting that some at least had been salvaged, and he, ne he never knew who had, who'd done it. Well, about six months ago, my younger son was doing a week's work experience at Chateau, uh, my publisher. And on his first morning, he was set to opening the editorial department's post. And the second letter was addressed to me. Happy coincidence, so the girls all said, open it, open it, and, and he did. And inside the outer envelope was another one, uh, neatly stuck down. And packed inside that one was one of the missing Heftian uh, from the years 1953 to 58. There was no letter, and there was no clue where it had come from. So it could have been the one that he lost in the office, which is perhaps the most likely because of the date, 53 to 58. Um, or it could be another that was salvaged in 1974, and that might well mean that there are more still out there. My son took it to mean that things like that happen every day and that work in publishing is tremendously exciting. Um, but I think probably I, I would take more of a personal line um, and I think I believe it's a mistake to, to think that one is ever actually completely finished. Thank you very much.